This week on the Men at the Movies podcast, we get lost at sea with Castaway. Time is a resource that we can't make more of, but for some reason we have a tendency to spend our time very cheaply. If we choose to live under the relentless taskmaster of the clock, we will find ourselves unable to prioritize or choose wisely. We must embrace our responsibility to decide what to do with the time that is given to us in order to move past the reef of survival and into a life of impact. Buckle up, it's going to get rough. And let's discover God's truth in this movie. The movies and stories we love are gateways to see ourselves and God in new ways. Every great story borrows its power from a larger story. The story that's written on our hearts and woven into the fabric of our very being. Hello and welcome to the Men at the Movies podcast. My name is Paul McDonald and joining me live in the office is Wilson. Hey Wilson, how are you doing today? That's great. It's awesome to have you here. You know, at the end of the movie, as you're floating away and Tom Hanks is yelling, Wilson, you know, it was really, we, we felt like we'd never see you again. So it's, it's awesome to have you in for the podcast and to talk to you and share your insights onto this story. So we're talking about the movie Castaway, released in 2000, starring Tom Hanks and Helen Hunt, and obviously you, Wilson. And it's interesting even in the title, because I always thought that it was just a one-word title, but when I was doing the work on the movie, it's actually two words. So Castaway, as one word, it does make me think, you know, lost at sea. But the, the, that idea of cast away almost like he's thrown away or pushed aside you know that that idea that that it's just it was just an interesting note that i that i had originally so when we look at the movie cast away it starts it opens with the view from a package right and on the packages it says the world on time and we're going to be talking a lot about time today because that was really the focus of this movie was how time was sort of, it was, it started off very important where we've, I've got a clip from the early on in the movie about Tom Hanks character, Chuck Noland, you know, if you put his initials at C no land, which he did for most of the movie there, but this idea of the world on time and time is so much pressure. So we do this men's retreat sort of through the church. It's, it's an inter intra organizational. So it's not really tied to one church at this last one. We had almost 30 men from 30 different churches uh, involved over 80 men there. And we show up on a Thursday night and it goes till Sunday afternoon and Sunday morning. I'm sitting down with a friend of, well, Dan, who has been on the podcast before he did, we did, we discussed the matrix it was Sunday morning. We we're talking about how long ago Thursday night felt because it we're sitting there and you're like, man, it, it seems like it's a week ago and it's been two days, two and a half days. And we're, we're there for this really compressed amount of time, but it feels much longer than it actually is. You know, on Friday night, I'm up there, they're talking to the guys and I'm like, remember the session this morning? That was just this morning and everybody laughs because it feels like days ago. So we're talking about the, the concept of what, what is it that makes it do that? Why we're, we're asking the question, right? Why is it like that? And one of the, the things we landed on is most of our lives are spent sort of chasing things around, being distracted but when we're up there, we, we do it at a YMCA camp, when we're at the outpost, the things we're doing matter as we're engaging and being present, talking to the guys in front of you, dealing with some deep heart stuff. And so it's sort of, I compared it to, to cotton candy and steak. Like most of, our, most of our time is spent like cotton candy where you can eat as much as you want and you're never going to get fill, full up. 
and you're never going to get filled. You're never going to get satisfied. But at the outpost, because we're spending our time engaging, um, you know, talking about heart matters, then it feels weightier. It feels like more has happened in a very short time. My, my theory was we did, we spent, we had more meaningful moments in that two and a half days than most guys do have in a week. Most guys do have in a month. And what Dan said was this line that I just loved is we spent, we tend, we have a tendency to spend our time very cheaply because time is a resource that we don't have much of. I mean, we have enough, we have what we have, but it's not a time. You can't make more time. You know, you can work harder or work more, get a second job and make more money. You can't make more time. Everybody gets the same amount of time. So as we're talking about time, it reminds me of, of this, the line from Fellowship of the Rings. And we've talked about that pot, that on the podcast already. And, and this conversation between Frodo and Gandalf and Fro, Gandalf's telling Frodo about the true power of the ring. And Frodo's looking at this, the, the ring, this, this sort of harbinger of doom, this beacon of danger. And he says, I wish it need not happen in my life. And man, there's so much I wish that did not happen in my life. And my backstory has divorce and job loss and, you know, intervention and suicidal attempts and homicidal threats and uh, unexpected pregnancies and things don't go as planned. And we, we go through those things and we're like, man, I wish it need not happen in my life. I mean, we got we're coming off of two years of COVID and political tension and divisiveness in all areas. And now you've got a, a possible people fear the starting of a world war in the Ukraine. And we're, <laughs> there is no end to the list of things that we can say, I wish that did not happen in my life. And Gandalf's response, most, most people, I think, know it or are familiar with it. He says, so do I. And so do all who live in to see such times. That is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And so as we jump into the movie, that's going to be the theme of it. What, what is Chuck going to do with the time that has been given to him? Because that's our choice too, is what are we going to do with the time that's given to us? So early in the movie, you see Tom Hanks, he's given a speech, he's in Russia, and, and he's given a speech because what he does, he is, a, um, he is a fixer. He is, hey, they're having productivity problems, they're having uh, time problems, they're not, getting their, they're not meeting their deadlines. And so he gets sent in to fix it. And so, and he works for FedEx, so FedEx is a prominent, shows a prominent role in the movie. And so he's there in Russia and he's trying to convince them of the importance of what they do, the importance of time. Rules over us without mercy, not caring if we're healthy or ill, hungry or drunk, Russian, American, beings from Mars. It's like a fire. It can either destroy us or it can keep us warm. That's why every FedEx office has a clock. Because we live or we die by the clock. We never turn our back on it. And we never, ever allow ourselves the sin of losing track of time. Locally, it's 1.56. That means we've got three hours and four minutes before the end of today's package sort. That's how long we have. That's how much time we have before this pulsating, accursed, relentless task Master tries to put us out of business. Yep, that's the that's the goal of time is to put FedEx out of business. <laughs> but he says time rules over us. He's a slave to time. We live or die by the clock. We can't afford the sin of losing track of time. And as people who get sick with with terminal diseases, they do everything they can to lengthen their time. 
And sometimes that, that means actually losing the time that they have, because I I mean, I used to work in a, in a, on an oncology unit and people, it was really, it was powerful because people dealt with stuff that mattered. Does my life matter? What does matter? How am I going to spend the rest of the time that I've been given? But some people, and the, the saddest stories are the people that wouldn't, that fought it. That did whatever they could to get squeeze one more minute, one more second out of it. Who seem to think as death as an option and not as, hey, we all are going to die. And it's not an if, it's a win. But so many of us treat it like it's an if. Or we say, no, that's not today. Like we assume that we've got, you know, 80 something years on the planet when we can be taken out by a, you know, falling tree or a, a car wreck or who knows. Working in the emergency department, there's a million ways to die. And it's kind of surprising that so many of us live in, with some of the decisions that we make on a daily basis. Things can happen. But when we fight it and we continue to treat death as an if and time as our master, man, you're going to just be, you're going to sound like, like Chuck there. This relentless taskmaster pulsating, right? This, this dominating concept of what am I doing with my time? But then that pressure gets to us because we, we feel like, oh, I've got to be doing something every minute of every day. And so you spend your life exhausted. But the Bible doesn't say that, right? I think it's one of the coolest things I heard, and it was only in the last couple of months, Genesis tells the story of creation and then you get to day six and he makes man and woman. And what's their first day look like on earth is a day of rest. The first day is rest. And I think that's a concept that Chuck doesn't have at this point in the movie. He's living or dying by the clock. What am I doing with my minute? He pulls out his schedule. He lives by his pager. You might call him a workaholic. And you see in this next clip, since I don't, Wilson, no offense, but you don't have any audio. So there's no, it's just me talking. So we're going to be playing a little more clip, a few more clips today. And so this next clip, we see, what living and dying by the clock looks like in that first scene. In the second one, it's very soon after you've got Chuck, Tom Hanks. He's in there with uh, his friend, Stan, and he's talking about work. And then they're interrupted by a flight attendant. And what she talks about is something that because of Chuck's focus on time and focus on work that he doesn't, I think it shows the impact on relationships. Last truck by two minutes? Two minutes. Actually, it was less than that. Well, the plane wasn't that heavy. You could have added some fuel and picked up the speed and made up the time. No, but it's about the trucks. Today's truck was two minutes late. Tomorrow's will be four minutes late, and then six minutes late, and eight minutes late. Next thing you know, we're the U.S. mail. Yeah, well, all I'm saying is, you've gotten all those trucks on the plane, those rooskies would be walking on water right now. Hey, now, don't, don't, don't give me that look. It's just grape juice, right, Chuck? Yeah. It's like a 1992 full-bodied grape juice. Uh, see no evil, hear no evil. Yeah, well, we'd offer you some, but, you know, somebody's got to fly the plane. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd just say no, right? Listen, Stan, I've been meaning to ask you, how's Mary? Oh, uh, well, we, we really don't know anything yet. She went to the doctor yesterday, and uh, it hasn't met metastasized as far as they can tell, but uh, it's just kind of wait and see. I'm so sorry. Would you tell her I'm going to come by and see her on my next layover? I just want you to know, Stan, we are all just thinking about her and you and just blessings. Thank you. And Chuck's response when they land is to try to get Stan the number of some doctor who's great. He's like, you can beat it. 
And there's stuff that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try. I'm not saying don't go to chemo or anything like that. But that focus on we can beat it, we can beat it, we can fight time, we can fight death. And I think you're going to lose every time. Time is a fixed resource. In Psalm 90, this is actually Moses who wrote this. It says, 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80, but even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. And it's this idea that we understand what the time, what to do with the time that's been given to us. And what we see here is Chuck's missing the point. Chuck is here sitting there talking to Stan and enjoying some some fine vino tinto. And he's talking about the importance of two minutes. And Stan's like, what's two minutes? Just make it up. You know, we can, you can fix this. And he says, no, it's a slippery slope. If I allow two minutes here, then it becomes four minutes and six minutes. And then we're the, the U.S. Postal Service, right? And so many of us live like that. Like I said, we spend our time cheaply. Because what matters more, the success, like you said, time is a taskmaster. Uh, uh, you know, it was, it's go, trying to put us out of business. And if that's our focus, then time wins, right? As, a, as, a, as, a, as an unrelenting taskmaster, time wins. And so we pray, we say, God, give us wisdom. Help us. To, and where's that wisdom come from? Realizing that life is short. Life is but a, but a vapor, that our days are numbered. But we know that we're not going to lose one more minute than God has planned for us. We're not going to die any sooner than God has planned or later. We can't do anything to extend our life. So if we look at time as this unrelenting taskmaster, I, I participate. I use this, this tool called the monk manual. And when I say I use it, I have one. I use it about once a month, maybe a couple times a month. I, I'm not real. I'm, it's not part of my daily routine yet. So they use the, this thing called the PAR method, P-A-R. P is prepare. So that means the night before the day, you would look ahead and figure what are the three most important things you want to do to, tomorrow? What are the three things you want to accomplish? And then you, the A is you act, you do the things, you go through life. But in the end of the day, so tomorrow, I would look back on what I did and say, did I accomplish those things that I said would make my day a success? It's sort of like a budget, but for your time. But even more so than time is your presence. And so I've been going through this. They do this 30-day program called Being and Doing because they're, they're, one of their philosophies is that if we are more fully focused on who we are becoming, who we are, our being, then what we do will be much more effective and successful and good. So this day I read, it was about intentionality. And this is what it says. Monks know that their time and presence is the most valuable currency they have. They are constantly in touch with a truth that the modern world often forgets. How we spend our time is how we spend our lives. All too often, the way we spend our time is disconnected from the vision we have for our life. In any given moment, we can feel overwhelmed by it all. So many choices, so many thoughts, so many feelings, all clamoring for a reaction. And so we react. Sometimes poorly, sometimes inadequately, sometimes half-heartedly. We give the important people and events of our life scraps of our attention while enabling distraction to consume us. And at the end of the day, this makes us feel lousy. We may guilt trip ourselves and blame our lack of discipline. Or maybe we just throw in the towel exhausted to the bone. But what we might not realize is that our instinctual knee-jerk reactions have less to do with discipline and more to do with a lack of awareness. Discipline itself is a fruit of awareness, which then leads to the joyful practice of intentional living. When we live intentionally, we are choosing to be conscious of the bigger picture and how each decision we make contributes to it. 
This type of awareness provides us with more direction, more peace, and more understanding of our actions. And as a result, more control of our reactions. The more we are able to zoom out on our lives, the more we are able to live intentionally. After all, intentionality is intimately tied to the deepest questions of our life. As we connect to these questions with more conviction and honesty, we'll find that our actions are more authentically aligned to how we truly want to spend our most precious resource, our time. And so then they talk about ways to incorporate intentionality. One is just slow down. Uh, the other is build, it says, build the habit of planning your daily priorities and schedule the night before so you wake up ready to begin your day. After you plan your week, look at each commitment and ask yourself, is this really essential to what's important to me? There was a short video that went along with the, the reading. And it's basically intentionality is about spending time to make time. It's about saying, where do I want to spend most of my time and my effort? He said, intentional people seem like they're not busy. They're not doing that much. The reality is there's, they are doing way more because they're doing more of the things that they want to do, the things that matter to them. Action does not equal progress. Busy work does not equal actual work. It's a way of saying, I am choosing this over this. And many times we feel like we don't have a choice. Like in the movie, they're at Christmas dinner and Chuck gets a page and he has to go to Malaysia to fix a problem. But the thing is, he had a choice. And we have a choice for how we spend our days. Maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe work calls and maybe you should go to that meeting. But if there's something going on, no, I've got this thing going on with my family or this thing going on with church or something that matters deeply to you. I mean, obviously work matters, but we often think, oh, if I miss this and I'm failing at work, then I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job. And it's, you remember, this unrelenting taskmaster. But Chuck is is very far removed from any sort of thought process other than how do we Tetris our schedules? How do we manipulate our schedules so that we can find the gaps? What do we need to cancel? What do we need to reschedule? What do we need to push back? Just come back for New Year's Eve, she says. Whatever you do. And he, and he promised, I'll be back by New Year's Eve. And, and this next, the scene when they say goodbye is really, it's, it's heart-wrenching because you know what's happening. You know what's going to happen. You know what's coming. And as he's walking away, he gives her a box. that's obviously a ring box where, because he, they've been talking about possibility of marriage. And he says, this is a more important gift than a two-minute drive on the way to the airport. And we'll talk about it when I get back. And so he leaves. He leaves things un, unsettled. And would he lose his job if he didn't go to Malaysia? I don't know. He seemed to be pretty good at it. I, I think he gets every, I think he can pick every now and then. But there comes a time when you have to decide what is most important to me. And at going to the end where Chuck comes back and he's talking with um, Kelly and she's talking about the Super Bowl with the Titans and they were one yard short. They were so close to winning. And it just made me think of that scene where you were just one yard short. You were so close to winning. If you just stayed, your whole life would have been different. If you had chosen relationship over work that moment, his whole life would have been different. And we can't, we can always look back and say, if this the happened instead of, and I don't want to be like the Uncle Rico from, uh, from Napoleon Dynamite who's say they put me into the state championship. I got to throw it over the mountains. You know, looking back is not the way to success either. But so he goes, Chuck goes, he gets on the plane. And it's interesting, the nonchalance that he has, because he's so used to travel. He's so used to this lifestyle that he's there. He takes his shoes off. He's sleeping. He's trying to joke around, and the pilots are obviously stressed out. And they say, you better buckle up. It's going to get bumpy. But he didn't go buckle up. He went to the bathroom to get cleaned up. 
And then he gets, sits down, he buckles, you know, cause all hell breaks loose at this point. He doesn't still doesn't put his shoes on, which I think he, he wished he would have. And there's a moment he's buckled up and they tell him to get the life raft, the life jacket. But he sees this pocket watch that Kelly had given him a pocket watch with her picture in it. And he's looking between the watch and the life vest. And he chooses the watch. Uh, he never gets the life jacket because as he's st- the, the, the plane is going all over the place and he's holding on to the rigging and, and trying to get, he's grabbed the, the watch and he's trying to make his way to the life vest. And then one of the, the other crew members sees him and they're like, don't stay where he says, stay where you are. And he gets up to try to help him. And then he hits his head on the bulkhead. He's bleeding everywhere. And he's just, he doesn't have a very good prioritization of what he actually needs. He's spending his time cheaply. Then he ends up on that island and now he has nothing but time. His pager is worthless. The watch doesn't work. This calendar, the schedule, none of it. Everything's gone and he realizes that I think how, how meaningless it all is, but, but he's still in that process of letting go because as the boxes are washing up on shore, he's packing them up. He's sorting them. He's like, there's a scene where he's covered them with the life raft in a storm. And I'm like, these boxes just floated through the ocean. Like you, Wilson, you floated through the ocean and you made it here to hang out with us and talk about this movie. Ben, why was he gathering them? Because he was expecting rescue. He was doing his job. Because in moments of crisis, that's what we do. We, we revert to what's comfortable. You know, after the crucifixion, Peter went fishing. Because that's what he knew. That's what he was comfortable with. You know, after a hard day of work. Or an argument with our wives. Or our kids are doing things we'd rather they not do. We pour ourselves an extra bourbon or a glass of wine or a beer. We watch a little extra Netflix. We go check out after the wives go to bed. We go look at porn. It's what you know how to do. Because we don't know how to handle crisis. Because in that moment of transition, when life is upended, we still, as he, as he talked about with Stan's wife, you can, you can beat it. You can fight it. You just need more time. You need to fight it. And you, 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 there's this resistance to reality that he shows for a little, for several days, it appears, on the island. And there's when he sees the boat, this, the light from the boat out there, and he chases it off. He jumps in his little makeshift raft. He tries to get out of the reef. Very a reaction, very rash, very foolish. As Spur said in, in The Man from Snowy River, don't throw effort after foolishness. And he tries to get off the island. He tries to get out of the reef, but the waves are just relentless. Talk about a relentless taskmaster. Those waves coming over the reef kept him there. And we have waves keeping us where we are too, because it's hard. It's hard to break lifelong patterns. It's hard to break reactions that have been built over decades of reacting. And you see, you see Chucky's even when one of the crew members, Albert washed on shore, he didn't even know his real name. He's like, Oh, it's, I guess he'd gone by Al. So he thought it was Alan. It was Albert. But again, showing the results of his life focused on time showed that he spent his life not focused on relationship not focused on the person in front of him that actually matters. And so for over four years, he's on this island. And early on, there comes a point where he does open the boxes, all but one of them, because he come to grips that he's on this island. He can't get out. After he tried to, to escape the, the reef, he realized that what he, what, what he was doing wasn't working. And so he needed to change his plans. And so 
it took a, it took something major for him to come to, to grips with his actual situation. And what does it take for us to come to grips with our actual situation? You know, with the fact that maybe our, our marriage isn't as good as we want it to be. Maybe we feel like we're on an island in the middle of our marriage. And this isn't, well, that's just the way it is. And we start sleeping in separate rooms. This is, I have to do the hard work to get off this island, but that's not going to happen just through brute force and effort. It's going to come with planning and thoughtfulness and pursuit and intentionality. How am I going to use the minutes that I have available to me? Or your children. I had with my daughter, I've worked very hard over the last few years. She was in high school. She said she wanted to go to nursing school, but her senior year, uh, as, as senior high school girls in high school will do, she gets distracted by a boy and she ends up pregnant by this boy. And, you know, in, in, she actually graduated. It was, we didn't know it at the time, but she gra- when she graduated, she was already pregnant. And we didn't find out until June or July because she had gone to get her wisdom teeth taken out and they do a pregnancy test to make sure that you can take anesthesia and it came back positive. And I didn't react in a very loving, fatherly way. Even... Even going back months before of of Troy, I was fighting the relationship. I was I was trying. We were basically she, her boyfriend and I were playing tug of war over my daughter. And if there are any guys out there, any dads out there who are doing that, I would highly recommend not doing that, not using manipulation and control, um, because that will damage the relationship. And so in December of that year, Kaysen was born, my grandson. And there's a whole long story around it, but I didn't want the relationship. I wanted a better relationship with my daughter. And so I looked for opportunities and she would always, when I would invite her to go out to lunch or to to dinner or breakfast, she would always, she seemed like she would always say yes to that. So this is a safe way that I can engage with her. And over time, we can build back that relationship. So I take my youngest, Andrew, he's a sophomore in high school. I take him to school uh, on Friday mornings. And so I told her, I was like, hey, what about after I drop Andrew off at seven o'clock? What if we go out for breakfast on Friday mornings? And she said, yes. And that's, you know, for a, a 20-year-old girl with a, two-year-old, 7.30 is early for breakfast. But she's made it. She's made the effort. She's responded to the invitation. And as the months have gone on, because we've been doing this now for several months, and it's even grown to the fact where I was like, wait, I could actually take Kaysen with me after breakfast, bring him back when I pick up Andrew from school, and I can actually give her some, some time back. I can give her time. And I can give case in time because, and this is where going back to the intentionality, what, what impact do I want to have on the people around me? Do I want to spend that Friday working and writing a book or do I want to make memories with my grandson? And in a lot of ways, writing the book is easier because you, you, you can, you can look at what you did. Here's what I accomplished today. You know, like in on the movie, when Chuck works very hard, he works all day and he made fire, right? Yeah! Yeah! Look what I have created! I have made fire! I have made fire! And that was the day Wilson was born, right? Yeah, he doesn't like that day very much. He got thrown against the rock. He, his face covered in uh, Chuck's blood. It's no good. But that's what we do some days. Look what I have created. Because it's easy to say, look what I accomplished. Look at the meetings I was in. Look at this report I did. Look at this, this. Look at my yard that I mowed or the bushes that I trimmed. You look at the accomplishments because that's an easier thing to measure than our impact and our relationships. 
But what was it that really got Chuck through his four years other than you, Wilson? Because I think you were very important. It was his relationship to Kelly. It was Kelly that kept him going. As he would say later in a, in a, in a scene, we're going to play it towards the end. It's like, she was still with me, even though she wasn't with me. And that's the other part that we can remember as we're going through these things is to remember that we're not going through it alone. And so Jesus in John 16 says, but I am now going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I'm going because they were the, even the disciples, they were focused on time. How are we doing it? What are we going to do? Why are we going back to Jerusalem? We're going to die. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come, the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the father is mine. And that is why I say the spirit will tell you whatever he receives to me. Because we're not walking through this life alone. We're not on some isolated island by ourselves. We've got the Spirit of God within us. The Spirit of God who communicates with Jesus and with the Father, who can tell us how to respond, how to deal with, with your daughter, deal with your wife, deal with work, who will guide you. Towards the end as, of Chuck's time there, as he wakes up, it says four years later, and you know, he's not chasing Fisher out. He's standing there throwing a, a spear from 30 feet away and nailing the fish. He's, he's just eating it raw. He doesn't need to cook it. He's able to, to survive. Although I would imagine he's pretty tired of fish by now. His early, he's become a better artist. You know, the wall is covered with, with, with paintings of Wilson and with Kelly. And then... When the piece of a portageon comes up, comes in in the tide, he sat there looking. He was pondering, how can I use this thing? Because he realized everything is expendable. So I need to make sure I'm using it to my best use. And that's what it, he was intentional about it. When he first opened the boxes, he's just like, nope, nope, nope. You know, what's a dress going to do? What do I need to do with VCR tapes or divorce papers? But over time, he, he's learned to ponder it, to, to give some, some thought to it. That idea about being intentional of, I'm thinking about how I want to spend it before I spend it. Instead of just, well, let me take this apart or cut this up or do this. I'll make a roof out of it. No, he's, he looks at it for who knows how long and says, how can we use this? And as he's sitting there, the wind comes and it blows it over. It's like, we could do that. It might work. That might work. We might be able to get off the island. And so he makes a plan. How am I going to spend the time available to me? Because there's work that has to be done. And we might say, well, I got to build a raft. Well, how do you do that? You have to break it down into manageable pieces. And so you hear that of as he takes this intentional approach that he has learned over the four years in isolation of now, how is he applying what he's learned to what he's actually gifted? It gives us another month and a half until we're into March and April, which is our best chances for the high tides and the offshore breezes. We need, we need 424 feet of good rope plus another 50 feet safe from miscellaneous that round that off to 475 feet of good rope. Now, if we average 15 feet a day plus, we have to build it, we have to stock it, we have to launch it. That's going to be tight. And it's not much time. 
He's sitting there thinking, those are words that I used to say. That's, that is how I used to do it. And there is a truth to it that we can't turn our back on time because time will keep rolling whether or not we're going with it. But are we spending an hour scrolling through social media? What are you doing with it? Is it spent cheaply? As on, like, like, like I talked about with the, sugary like cotton candy or are we spending it wisely are we spending it richly like a uh, an aged scotch or a bourbon or a wine as they as they were drinking earlier he's like we can't afford to turn it back and it was interesting because he had even marked up the months and the dates because that's he needed his calendar. He needed his schedule. So he would look at where the sun moved on his, on the wall there to mark the days of, and the weeks and the months. But so then he knew he had spent four years studying and preparing for that moment of knowing, well, when is the best time? When do the winds help us to get us off this Island? And there will be dark days in that time. And Wilson I apologize. You might not want to listen to this part because this is, he gets in an argument because he remembers the time that he didn't want to wake up anymore. He's like, something's going to happen and I'm going to die on not on my terms. I'm going to get sick or I'm going to get to this. So he did. He tried to commit suicide. This was a year in the past. Like he needed the rope that was still on the tree from his test run because he had put a log on there to see if the, the tree would have held his weight, which it wouldn't have. So he's even in one sense, he was left powerless. He's like, I can't even die the way I want to, but he, because of his meticulous nature, he was saved from a horrible death of breaking his leg, breaking his back, bleeding out on the rocks. We all reach this point just like early when his plane crashed and he had to come to grips with where he was, there comes a moment when where we are is no longer acceptable. Do you have to keep breaking that up? Can't you just forget it? Huh? You were right. You were right. It was a good thing that we did a test because it wasn't going to be just a quick little snap. I would have landed on the rocks and broken my leg or my back or my neck. It was the only option I had at the time, though, okay? It was, what, a year ago? So let's just forget it. And what is your point? Well, we might just make it. Did that thought ever cross your brain? Well, regardless, I would rather take my chance out there on the ocean than to stay here and die on this shithole island, spending the rest of my life talking to a goddamn volleyball! The interesting thing uh, when I was doing a little research about this. Um, so the character, your character, Wilson, was created by the the screenwriter, uh, William Broyles Jr. It's a researching for the film. He actually consulted with uh, survival experts and actually chose to spend a week on an isolated beach to to force himself to get into what it would be like to be stuck like Chuck was. And while he was on this beach, he was having to search for food, water, make his own shelter, all that stuff. A volleyball actually washed up on shore and was the inspiration for Wilson's character. But we see that, that he's stuck on the island and he's tried to get 
he's tried to escape on his own and that didn't work. And we get to this point where it's like, no, I don't, I don't know if we're going to survive, but I would rather die out there on this ocean rather than on this island talking to a volleyball. Because there, he knows there's more to his life than what he's existing. Because he could exist, right? He's surviving. He's got fish. He's got shelter. He's got warmth. He's surviving. But he also knows that there's more to life. And I think that we know that too. Is Like, wait, there's, there's more than this stuff that I've sort of this life of reaction and living under the burden and relentless taskmaster of time has given me. And as they're, as they escape the reef and they, they do the planning and they do all this, they get off the Island. And of course, in the, the, one of the big emotional scenes, Wilson falls off the, the raft. He's got no hands. He can't hold on. And it's a scene that reminded me of during the crash. Watch or life jacket. And he chose to watch. And in this scene, as Wilson's floating away, that had to be very hard for you, Wilson. Chuck was forced to choose between swimming off and saving Wilson and staying with the boat. And this time he stayed with the boat because he he has known he knows now what will actually save his life. Like if he saves Wilson but is unable to get back to the boat, he, they're dead. And he knows this. Like he should have taken the life jacket. Even though the watch got him through and all that. The life jacket is what would have helped save his life. And so he does stay with the boat. Wilson floats off and he and you guys are separated forever, at least until you washed up on a beach later. So he gets home, he gets rescued. And so we, we see now four weeks later, as he as Stan would say, it's tough to bring a guy back to life. A lot of paperwork involved. But we see Chuck transformed. Because that's the point of the stories. The whole story is character transformation. And so we see the evidence of the change in Chuck in this conversation that he and Stan have as they're flying back to the headquarters in Memphis. So you had my funeral. And then you had Mary's funeral. Stan, I'm so sorry I wasn't around when Mary died. I should have been there for you, and I wasn't. I'm so sorry. And it's funny, he's apologizing for something he had no control of. Or did he? Because you can say he was apologizing for being on the island. But I think he was apologizing for not being there for him before that. I mean, it's funny. We apologize for all kinds of weird things. Like, uh, I'll be talking on the phone with my brother and one of his kids will come up and ask him a question and he'll talk to them. He's like, I'm sorry. He's like, why are you apologizing for being a dad? For talking to your children? For, you know, hey, I can't do this. I'm sorry. He's like, no, you're, there's no reason to be sorry you can't do it. You're, we, we just apologize for all kinds of weird things. But that's a side note. He's apologizing for not being there for him. He's not apologizing for not getting him the phone number of the doctor, not apologizing because Mary died from cancer. He just apologizes because he wasn't there at a time when his friend needed him. He sees the person in front of him. He's realized what is most important. And it's the relationships. It's the friendships. He's not sorry for Missing work. <laughs> Who's sorry for missing work? That's the office space line, right? Hey, I see you missed work the last few days. I wouldn't say I missed it, Bob. It's like, I'm not sorry I missed work. I'm not sorry the search parties were empty. I'm sorry I wasn't here for you. And I think he was apologizing before the crash, for the time before the crash. 
I'm sorry that I was so focused on work. I didn't focus on you. And so then they go to the big party and it's, and it's just one thing after another of people saying, Hey, we got to catch up on fishing. They did a sushi bar. They, he's got a lighter. He, the, the thing that he likes most is the cup of ice. When Kelly gives him the keys to his Jeep, he looks at the pen knife, the pocket knife. And these little things that we take for granted every day were on that island almost a matter of life and death or would have changed his life. But we can, we can focus so much of our time on what we want, whether that's the knife or the light or the shoe. You know, he didn't have shoes, so we can focus and we can sit around and saying, if I only had this, if I only had friends, if I only had a good church, if I only had this or, or better job or kids that would listen or um, whatever, we focus on what we want but don't have. But we need to look at our lives and say, what do we have that we can use? What do we have that is possible? You know, when, when Moses went to the burning bush and he's telling God, I can't go before Pharaoh. He's, he's the most important man in the world. I can't go up to him. I'm, a, I'm out in the wilderness. I've got nothing. I don't speak very well. And God says, what's in your hand? And throughout the, the journey of, with God, Moses used his staff to perform miracles to, as a symbol of hope and of freedom. Over and over, God uses what's in his hand to provide freedom and comfort and direction for the people. So we're, we're landing the plane. Probably shouldn't use that analogy on this movie. Sorry. <laughs> Chuck sees Kelly. They realize that it's not going to work because she has a family. She's married. She's got a daughter. And Chuck is wrestling with what this means for his future. And so he's back at Stan's house again. Stan is sort of his, his, his comforter. As we, we look at our lives, well, what does this movie mean for us? Well, how do we escape the pressure and the relentless taskmaster of time? And it's just to not let it win, right? It's to keep going. And that's what I think he says at the we end of this. We both had play. done the math. And Kelly added it all up. Knew she had to let me go. I added it up, knew that I had, I'd lost her. Because I was never going to get off that island. I was going to die there, totally alone. I mean, I was going to get sick or I was going to get injured or something. The only choice I had, the only thing I could control when and how and where that was going to happen. So I made a rope and I went up to the summit to hang myself. I had to test it, you know, of course. You know me. And the weight of the log snapped the limb of the tree. So I, I, couldn't even kill myself the way I wanted to. I had power over nothing. That's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket. I knew somehow that I had to stay alive. Somehow. I had to keep breathing even though there was no reason to hope. And all my logic said that I would never see this place again. So that's what I did. I stayed alive. I kept breathing. And then one day that logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in 
gave me a sail. And now here I am. I'm back. In Memphis, talking to you. I have ice in my glass. And I've lost her all over again. I'm so sad that I don't have Kelly. But I'm so grateful that she was with me on that island. And I know what I have to do now. Gotta keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring. It's really easy to try to let the taskmaster of time, whether it's time in front of us or time behind us, take out our hope. And he said he had power over nothing. He couldn't even kill himself the way he wanted to. And actually, when we realize we have relatively limited power, we have power over nothing. That is a comfort. Because we know who has power over everything. You know, we don't have to worry about, uh, Jesus says, you know, be like the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. And if your father who, who is in heaven cares about those things, he clothes the lilies in beauty. He takes care of the sparrows. Not one of them falls from the sky without him knowing about it. If he cares about these things, these things that he spoke into existence, how much more does he care about you, a person that he handcrafted and kissed into existence? And when we realize how limited our power is, but how great God's power is, and that should be like a comfort, like a warm blanket. And say, yeah, this day sucks. This day is hard to get through. And there are days that it's just, I just need to keep breathing and see tomorrow morning. Because you don't know what the tide will bring in. And so the, the, the final scene of the movie where he delivers the package with the angels and then, or the angel wings on it. She's not home. So he goes back and he's literally at the crossroads. Right? I mean, it's, it's super obvious. He's at a crossroads and every day we are at a crossroad and he's trying to figure out what day to where to go. The, the, the woman drives up and as she drives away, the angel wings are on the tailgate. She says, well, you're at, you're at the crossroads. This road goes to Canada. This road goes to California. You get to decide. Going back to Gandalf. It's up to us to decide what to do with the time that we've been given. And Jeremiah puts it this way in, in Jeremiah 6. This is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your souls. And the sad part is it ends with, but you reply, no, that's not the road that we want. Because when we take the road we want, we're not going to find rest for our souls. We're going to be Chuck in the beginning of the movie, chasing time, living under the burden and the taskmaster that is time, missing the people that are around us. But when we stop at the crossroads and look, when we take the godly way, when we take the good way, we walk that path, then you will find rest for your souls. And isn't that what we want in this world? In this world of things going on that we have no power over. I can't control what Russia and Ukraine do. I can't control what COVID does. I can't control what the government does. But I can control, I can choose the path that I'm going to walk. And by saying, I, this is, I want to choose the path the good path. I want to find rest for my soul. 
I want to have an impact on the people around me. I want a good relationship with my family and my friends. I want to choose how to spend my time. And I'm going to choose to spend it wisely. I'm going to choose to spend it richly because my time is valuable. My presence is valuable. And really nothing matters more than that is how I spend my time and how I give my presence. So Wilson, thank you for joining us. You're a very quiet guest, but an, an underrated actor in your own right. I think you should have gotten more, more recognition for the role you played in this movie. And guys, I hope you enjoyed this, this episode of the Men of the Movies podcast where it was just me, Paul McDonald, talking about Cast Away. And what, what in your life needs to be cast away so that you can live the life that you were meant to live? How are you going to decide what to do with the time that has been given to you? So I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you join us next week here on the Men at the Movies podcast. Something inside has been awakened. I can no longer be who I was before. But if I am no longer who I was, who am I to be? Who am I to be?